Now, of course, it's traditional for podcasts these days to have a little bit of preamble before the music kicks in that makes it all sound like it's really casual and that these are your best friends. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go for that or not, but... Uh... Uh, yeah, maybe just start with the title sequence. <laughs> Welcome to Second Features, and this is our first episode. So my name is Dr. Adrian Smith, and I teach film down at Sussex University. And uh, what do I do? Blimey, hang on. This is harder than I. <laughs> this is harder than I thought. So my specialist area was the British film industry of the nineteen sixties in terms of distribution and exhibition. And uh, that's what I, I've sort of written quite a lot about, although I'm moving away from that now. But it does usually end up um, being towards the horror and cult end of, uh, of British cinema and, uh, and European cinema as well, something like that. But um, my, my co-host here is Dr. Hello. Laura Main. Hello. Hello, I'm, yeah, I'm Dr. Laura Main, and I've only just realised that, Adrian, we pretty much do the exact same thing, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I teach film at the University of Hull, and my research until recently was very much focused on, yeah, British cinema of the 1960s, uh, distribution, and the sort of how the film industry uh, used to work, and um, kind of all the way up to the present day, how the film industry con- and continues to work. Uh, I'm more on the sort of um, a B-movies as a form of exhibition side of things. So I looked more at, um, you know, when film programs used to be composed of like two films. So first, the first one was the A feature, the thing you went to see. And then the um, second item on the program was the, the B feature um, or, you know, the second feature. So uh, that's the kind of movie that you didn't necessarily want to see, but you felt like you'd get value for money if your film program contained, you know, more than the one film. So uh, after about maybe the 1980s, that became less common. So I kind of look at exhibition in that sense. Yeah, I really wish that that was still, I mean, obviously right now we can't go to the cinema at all, but if we could, it would be great if they still did double bills like that. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Can you imagine? Just um, like the way people used to just rock up uh, during the the B movie, um, which was invariably often some kind of quite quite clunky crime film uh but you just w- walk around in the middle of it people would chat and talk and nobody was really paying attention but it was it, it would have been such a great sense of community um it probably would have been quite annoying as well for a lot of people who actually came to watch the film <laughs> but it, i mean that would be such a fun thing wouldn't it well i suppose this this idea of us sitting in silence watching the movie is not how it you know that's not generally how it used to be. Cinemas were pretty noisy places, like you said, and mm-hmm. people would leave before the end and come in halfway through. And um, yeah, I suppose if you were used to that, then that's fine. But I don't think I would have liked it very much. So this is the first podcast and I've kind of taken it upon myself to choose the film that we're going to talk about today. Um, and I've chosen Gary Sherman's 1972 cannibal horror film, Deathline. In the depths of the city, 
a nightmare grows real. A sinister evil that festered for generations in its moldering tomb. Who stalks those deadly shadows? Whose cry echoes their horror? Whose blood will flow when it strikes again? What strange hunger drives it to prey on the young and strong and experience an ultimate terror? So fearful that no additional scenes can be shown in this preview. talk a little bit about why I chose this film for the first podcast mm. it's because uh, I've watched you know in my uh, research on British cinema and on um, you know lesser known films from uh, independent distributors more low budget films horror films it's quite rare that I've come across something and I know this is kind of mean but it's quite rare that I've come across something that I think genuinely this is one of the best kinds of this type of film I have ever seen um, or this is one of the best examples of British cinema or horror cinema that I've ever seen. But when I watched Deathline, I was like really pleasantly surprised and kind of just bowled over by how great it was. And um, I mean, there's there's a lot of good films out there, but it was so surprising to me that Deathline just wasn't that well known. So I ran across it a few years ago before it was released um, on kind of Blu-ray. Um, and it was kind of, there was a DVD release knocking about, but it just wasn't very well known. And I thought this is this is pretty incredible that nobody's talking about this film. And it's also quite a, a really different film for British cinema in the sense that it's doing stuff that British horror cinema up until that point hadn't ever really done before. Um, so, you know, it was really gory, but it was also looking at these interesting kind of social themes, themes around class. Uh, and it was it's quite a kind of thoughtful, intelligent film, as well as being quite a horrific and gruesome film. Yeah. So it's definitely not a hammer horror film. Yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting about it. It seems to be one of the first British horror films that recognized what was going on in american horror and um you know because in britain we talk about people like hammer and amicus and they were still sort of they were struggling to modernize and they were still making gothic horrors and the sort of creaky stuff that had been popular five ten years earlier but was looking increasingly old-fashioned i mean i think you know around this time hammer was still making things like lust for a vampire and then you've, mm. you've got a film like this which is so modern and so kind of extreme for a British film. Um, and it, it's got much more in common with something like Night of the Living Dead. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's amazing how it just sort of came out of the blue. And, yeah. Uh, and then gradually just got forgotten about. Um, I mean, it was, I think when it was released, um, you know, Robin Wood loved it. Yeah, you know, the great critic Robin Wood mm. just ador adored the film. But apart from that, it, it didn't really get a wide release or reception it was uh yeah it's an odd one um but it did kind of seem to come out of nowhere and uh i mean just to to kind of recap the plot for those of you who haven't seen the film uh it's about these two students called alex and Pat patricia uh, so that's how we begin the film um they are exiting the last train to russell square and they find a man who is lying on the stairs of the station um he looks drunk uh and they kind of try and find out who he is but then it turns out that they kind of go back and look for him and he's he's gone um and they they don't know what happened um and a police officer who is uh, played uh, by donald pleasance 
um, who is amazing in this film, um, called, uh, yeah, <laughs> Inspector Calhoun. Um, he's called to investigate and he finds that, um, you know, this man is one of a handful of people who've recently gone missing from Brussels Square Station. Um, and from this point on, it kind of maybe gets a bit spoilery, but um, to be honest, this is revealed quite early on in the film anyway. It's revealed that people have been going missing from the station, and at the same time, there are these um, strange people living underneath Russell Square Station. Uh, and uh, the detective finds out about this, this cave-in that happened when the station was being built. And apparently a lot of workers were, um, you know, were uh, trapped under rubble. And it was assumed they were dead, but actually they weren't. And um, they actually kind of made a society. And they survived over the years by... It's kind of a, the assumption marrying each other or having relationships with each other. It's a bit... Uh, I'm not really sure how many how many workers there were originally who were supposed to be kind of trapped under this rubble, but uh, they've kind of uh, this was kind of about hundred and odd years ago, so it was kind of in the late Victorian period. Mm. Um, so I mean, if we could of... address just that the elephant in the room here for me is that these people were digging tunnels and then there was a cave in, and they got stuck. But if they're digging tunnels, why couldn't they dig themselves out? That's oh my. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that is a bit of a plot hole. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and was it? Com- I mean, this is a question. Perhaps we can ask our guest later. But was it common for women to be involved in digging tunnels in Victorian London? Um. Yeah. See, I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> that hadn't. Sorry. That hadn't entered my mind. Just to just to um, rain on everyone's parade there, but that that's a bit of an odd part of that. I mean, you have to just accept it and move on, I suppose. Well, okay, so so maybe um, the women were stolen. Uh, they were commuters. Uh, uh, that's true. Who were kind of kidnapped um, and then became part of that society, possibly. Mm, maybe. So, haha. <laughs> <laughs> In your face, there is an explanation. Uh, so yeah, as long as we don't go too clo- uh, deeply into that, I think uh, the premise of the film is quite interesting. Uh, and um, yes, yeah, so over the years, these cannibals have been have been stealing commuters and eating them. Um, but what's really interesting is that they're not just monsters; like they're they're kind of um, painted in quite a sympathetic light. Uh, so this is kind of um, where the there's a sort of social theme to this film, where there's a there's a kind of criticism of the um, you know the industry and the government and um, the structures of society that allowed these people to get trapped, these workers to get trapped. And we see um, in the film they have kind of built a, a little society. They have kind of tools and they have um, you know uh, toys and children. And we get a sense that this is kind of um, you know this is not these are not just evil faceless monsters. Uh, they are people and there's a really sympathetic heart to this which i think is really interesting it is i mean again not wanting to just try and pick holes in this (laughs) but the thing that always puzzled me with this one is if there there presumably were several people at the beginning and like if they've had children and then those children have had children i was never really entirely sure why there was only one person left by the time we well one guy and his wife by the time we get to this point, like where did everyone else go? Because if they were all having children, there should be, like you said, like a small society down there. And I've never been quite sure. And also, clearly, if they're able to abduct people from the tube, that means they could just get out. So why are they still mm. down there? 
these are these are questions that this film these are raises. these are very very pertinent questions yeah if they can <laughs> abduct people then they can see the exit sign yeah. of the tube station <laughs> <laughs> they can mm. potentially make their way to the northern line but then for it, example the, the film would have been very short so it would have been a very short yeah. film yeah there wouldn't have been a film at all no. um, because they would have escaped years before yeah they, uh, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, it's that it's a tricky one. It's it's not really yeah. I mean, I again, <laughs> you just have to accept the premise and move on because it's what what's great about this film is the atmosphere that's created, and the use of the the sets and the location shooting and um and the performance, like you said, the sympathetic performance of the um the last man down there mm, is the man. all of yeah. that stuff means you can just you have to accept this quite improbable scenario and uh, and just enjoy it and the man is so interesting it kind of reminds me of the monsters from you know those old universal horror films Mm. so uh he reminds me a bit of frankenstein yeah uh you know the the silent empathetic frankenstein um from is it James Wells Frankenstein? Yeah. Uh, the Universal film. Mm. So he's just so empathetic, but also, uh, you know, we his his wife has died and he's grieving for her, uh, and this is kind of what we find out in the film. And she was pregnant as well, uh, so we get a sense of him as like a, a grieving kind of emotional character. And we really he doesn't talk at all, basically, apart from one phrase, which is "mind the doors." Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah he's heard the tube person saying. And um, that's all he knows how to say is mind the doors, which is kind of, uh, you know, a bit ridiculous. Uh, mm. And But it's supposed to kind of be quite, um, yeah, poignant. And I think it kind, it kind of is. Like, it is quite a poignant film that really tries to humanise this monster. Mind the doors! Because it's, uh, it's only been 70 years since the cave-in. Um, yeah. So again, the, the the idea that they've somehow forgotten all their language is a bit odd. But then, yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't intentionally come on here to just pick holes in it. Um, but like I keep saying, you, I, I, personally, when I watch the film, I don't let that stuff bother me. I just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you let that stuff bother you a lot. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No. Um, I mean, logic is not something that you need to really worry about. In a lot of horror films, you have to just accept the internal logic. This film is just so ballsy, Deathline, Mm. in terms of what it does and how it experiments with the form. And I think, you know, Gary Sherman, young director, is arriving in uh, England at a time when there are lots of other young directors who are making really more, um, not exactly experimental, but quite creative and innovative takes on horror. So we'd had, you know, Michael Reeves who did um, Wishfinder General. And we had all those young uh, directors supported by like small distributors like Tegon and Peter Sasty who did, uh, it's kind of hand, the hands of um, Adrian, what was it? Oh, Hands of the Ripper. Was it the Hands of the Ripper? Yes. Yeah, stuff like this. It, so it's kind of really new, interesting, and quite quite gruesome, quite gory horror films. But, yeah. Um, really quite intelligent horror films. Um, yeah, but I suppose another good one to make a comparison with would be um, Michael Armstrong's Haunted House of Horror, which was mm-hmm. uh, three years before this, which, again, it's a terrible, terrible title, and it wasn't the one that he wanted. But that again, that was a Tygon film, and it was supposed to be called The Dark, and that was very modern in its approach as well. And so you're right that it was these young guys coming in with 
with fresh ideas and you've got the mainstream horror companies like Amicus and Hammer who are still basically the old guard and all the directors are mainly in their 50s and 60s and it took these younger ones to come in and show them how the, the direction they should be going in. Yeah, well, see, I mean, that was uh, new in the late 50s, um, you know, Curse of Frankenstein. Those, that Hammer film cycle was kind of out of nowhere and it was pretty incredible. But by this point, they'd been going for, you know, 12, 14 years and it was a formula that was quite recognisable and maybe getting a bit kind of well-worn. Um, so this kind of, yeah, Gary Sherman and directors like him kind of came along and rejuvenated this and maybe had more freedom to... to do more because they're working in quite a low budget genre and maybe there is a little bit more creative freedom there um i mean uh, there is quite unusual certainly to see an eight and a half minute long take tracking shot in a british film of this this of any era um so i mean i don't i don't quite think it's a long take in the sense that it's an unbroken shot because i think it just it but it looks like one um, there is a there's a bit in Deathline which just gives you a sense of how how horribly gruesome this film is, but how amazing. Uh, when we're introduced to the man who is living underground, the the first time we meet him, we have this this long long tracking shot that seems to last forever of his lair, and we sort of move so slowly around his lair, and the camera alights on things like um, just bric-a-brac and uh, little kind of household bits and pieces and then but also kind of we take in severed limbs and you know the, the evidence of that people have kind of been eaten and dismembered uh, and we kind of make no distinction between these things and we end up sort of alighting on the man at the start who's been kidnapped Manfred and we see that he's actually still alive and he's looking around at all this gruesome stuff. Um, and the, we just keep going and going and going and going for eight and a half minutes. And um, I was reading an interview with Gary Sherman where he talks about this tracking shot and why he did it. And you know, it genuinely was because he wanted to do a long take. Now this is a, a director who's never done a feature before. Um, and he's quite, he's kind of new to the genre and he, he's watched Orson Welles' Touch of Evil and thought that long take at the start, that four minute unbroken shot, that is brilliant. I want to do something like that. And I'm going to do something like that. Mm. And that is what he did. Yeah, and I suppose because it was such a low budget, it was under £100,000. So no yeah. one's really looking over his shoulder and asking him what he's doing and making him account for every single penny that he's spending. So, um, so yeah, if he wants to be experimental, no one's really going to get in his way, which is great. Yeah, and there's just so many great performances in it as well. Um, the man is one. I mean, the... Uh, it's a, f- a fairly unknown actor who plays the man, but mm. it's a really compelling performance. But then we've also got Donald Pleasance. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how amazing Donald Pleasance is <laughs> in this film. Yes. Yes, so energetic. Um, and he never, he's got seems a kind of to, madness. he never seems to age. I think he's, he always looks the same age no matter what time period of film you're watching him in. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of does, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um but this kind of uh, the sense you get of this really um, this madness, this sort of uh, barely contained um, enthusiasm, and you feel like at any moment he's going to jump up and start doing a jig. He's just mm-hmm. got this kind of um, trembling energy about him, and 
there's this great little thing about class in the film where Donald Pleasance is playing quite a working class inspector and he very much is bringing that to the role. Um, and Christopher Lee is playing a government official who is really upper class to the point where he's wearing, I don't know if it's exactly a top hat, but it is a kind of um, an extravagant hat mm-hmm. <laughs> and a suit and a cane. So they're, they're very much positioned against each other. Yeah. One's upper class and one's lower class, one's working class. And that's kind of paralleled in the whole kind of um, this plot of the film where the workers get trapped underground and the government try and cover it up. Uh, quite an interesting juxtaposition in their performances i think well that whole scene with donald pleasance and christopher lee is very strange because christopher lee delivers all of his lines direct to camera and then we cut to donald pleasance looking back at him um but we never see them in the shot together which would suggest that it was all filmed entirely separately but it kind of adds a very almost surreal aspect to that scene like it's it's quite it's quite unreal in how it plays out what a droll fellow you are the manfred case is closed it was never open clear if someone is reported missing in my manner that's my business your dainty little footsteps are echoing in places where one is well advised to tread lightly are you threatening me you're very perceptive Beyond even your well-known working-class virility, why don't you go back to planting pot on people? And mind you, don't become a missing person yourself. And the reason for this is not necessarily that they shot it in single takes because they couldn't get Christopher Lee that day. Actually, they were in the same room, I think. Hmm. Um, The reason... (laughs) (laughs) The reason is that Christopher Lee is very tall and Donald Pleasance is very short. Mm, That's true. Um, doing a, a short reverse shot apparently it looked weird but then um, what we end up with which is um, yeah we're looking directly at Christopher Lee's face as he's talking and then back directly at Donald Pleasance is possibly even weirder yeah. um, it's just, so... it's just it's just another one of those elements that makes the film what must have in 1972 must have made it seem quite new and it was doing mm. something different this was a very different way of approaching this kind of a scene. It wasn't just the, uh, you know, the wide shot, two shot, reverse shot, close up. It, it they it was doing it in a very different way. Um, yeah. And so it, and it, not, they get not, away with it. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure logistically what I mean. I'm not not okay. I'm not a filmmaker, but um, couldn't Donald Pleasance have stood on a box or something? <laughs> Well, you know, really so. have sat down. Yeah, or just get Christopher <laughs> Lee to sit in a chair. I mean, Christopher <laughs> Lee was always taller than the people he was in scenes with. This wasn't a new problem. Yeah, um, <laughs> and you know, he'd he'd really kind of quite kindly agreed to the, to do the film for for basic union rates yeah. because you know it's a very low budget film, but he wanted to do it. And there's this great quote from him. It's uh, I've read it's something like, um, I'll, "I'll do the film if I don't have to wear those teeth." Mm. Um, so he's not playing Dracula. <laughs> Yes, because in 1972, this is he still had. Um, well, he just he just done uh, just done Dracula AD 1972, and he still had satanic rites of Dracula coming towards him. So, uh, yeah, any chance to be in a film without having to do that must have been quite a relief. And he's uh, he's not in it very much, no. but he is 
he does have a presence mm. uh definitely and i love the the back and forth between him and uh inspector calhoun donald pleasance because there is such a, a simmering resentment um you know donald pleasance's character you know literally says f you to him mm-hmm. <laughs> in this scene i think i think i heard that yes. it's very low but i think you can just make it out yes uh so there's a yeah there, there's a great sort of chemistry between them and um I think I'm right in saying that Christopher Lee wanted to work with Donald Pleasance, and that's partly why he agreed to do it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's um, a really interesting film. It's playing around with the form. It's doing new stuff. It also has this really interesting theme of social responsibility and class. Um, it's got Christopher Lee... And the way Christopher Lee in this film is positioned as a member of the old guard is quite interesting. Mm. Or, you know, an official, um, someone who's quite upper class uh, from from the sort of, um, you know, the government, uh, the the structures of um, people who run things. Because he is such a an iconic figure from Hammer uh, horror films, isn't he? So it's it's almost symbolic that Christopher Lee is the old guard here. And Donald Pleasance is the kind of scrappy working class detective. It's like... I mean, it's kind of, I don't want to say Donald Pleasance is Deathline and Christopher Lee is Hammer, um, because that's ridiculous. But also, there's a a kind of symbolism there. There's a little bit of symbolism. Yeah, uh, but of course, Donald Pleasance had also been in a Hammer film um, about 10 years earlier. Yeah, that's true. So so he'd got form and he was about to be in an Amicus film or he just had done one, I think, around Mm -hmm. this time. So they're they're both working actors who would have, appear in pretty much anything if the fee was agreeable i think mm-hmm. at this point and um and obviously donald pleasance would then go on to have a bit of a hollywood career a few years later and christopher lee was about to head off to hollywood and do james bond and all that stuff but yeah it's mm-hmm. an interesting juxtaposition like you said between the with christopher lee representing authority and you can see hammer films as being the horror authorities if you like at this time yeah but they're on their way out and this film suggests that the um, the working classes are going to rise up. They're not going to stand for this anymore. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and, authority was the word I was looking for. Thank you, Adrian. Yeah. And I mean, we love films about, we love talking about class. The British are co- obsessed with it. And I talk about this with my students sometimes, that you can read class into pretty much any film. Uh, any British film, there's elements of class resentment or a class structure or something and, and yeah this film is from what i've read about the you know gary sherman talking about it that it was very deliberately about this sort of attack on the uh, upper classes but oh yeah he does he does come out and say that in a recent interview with diabolique magazine actually he says that was that was what i wanted to do i wanted to to make a socially responsible horror film i wanted to take a pop at the establishment essentially yeah well why not <laughs> Yeah, but it's the it's the gore that particularly struck me the first time I saw it. I was not expecting to see that level of on-screen gore in a British film from 1972. Mm. It's um, it's pretty impressive, and I suppose partly he's able to take advantage of the fact that the BBFC changed their certification rules for the X certificate in 1970. So post 1970, you do start to get more and more explicit elements coming into into British films because mm-hmm. because it was for 18-year-olds now instead of 16-year-olds and that seems to have made a big difference as well. 
Oh yeah, um, I I kind of forgot about that 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 kind of um, bit in the early seventies in British cinema where there was this controversy because the rating system had changed and there were a number of films that were so explicit and um, yeah there was a big cens- censorship controversy at that time wasn't there? Mm. But lots of interesting films, obviously the stuff like the Devil oh, yeah. the Devils had only just come out the year before this and uh, mm-hmm. yeah we could talk about that all day. But <laughs> yeah, that was a very explicit film. Yeah. There's the elements of those that film still haunt me to this day <laughs> <laughs> true yeah but we um perhaps uh, something we haven't quite mentioned so much yet we um was the idea of the the cannibalism and uh, just to come back to that they're eating people that they find in the stations but i was also wondering if one of the reasons there's barely anybody left underground is because they've also been eating each other that's kind of my assumption too but then I I think no I think no they'd haven't because they've got there rules. Is, yeah, there is such pains <laughs> taken to establish that this is a a society and these people are kind of apex predators. So they see um, human beings as a food source, but they maybe don't see themselves as hmm. people in the same way. So they're hmm. kind of different or apart. Um, and they there there's such pains taken to show a community and you know uh, there have been children. And um, I think it would go. It would work against the humanizing of these cannibals if they eat each other. True. And um, <laughs> there's actually, I've uh, the cannibals are kind of the man is is very diseased. Like he has lots of boils on his face. He, I mean, he's kind of meant to look quite gruesome. But there is this kind of. I think there's a plot of uh, illness and disease in the film. Mm. Like these these people have been dying off as a result of you know, unsanitary conditions and disease. So I think possibly that is uh, why we only see the man at the end of it. And presumably incestuous as well, which which would render them more liable to uh, sickness and uh, Yeah. And yes. I suppose. <clears throat> I don't know how that far was, you want was... to go into that. But... <laughs> That was my assumption, yeah. That's kind of, I think that's what the film wants, to, wants us to infer. <laughs> uh so yeah that's that's uh incredibly uh grotesque very very gross um even the, the whole appearance of the man the the monster is is very grotesque uh but it's really like you said something about it being more american uh because that cannibal thing was something that happened a couple of years after deathline in american cinema right yeah i think so I mean, we had you had the kind of early um herschel gordon lewis films i suppose although i to be honest i've never really watched any of those so i can't say just how much cannibalism there was but i'm thinking of stuff like blood feast the on the kind mm. of extreme exploitation end the sort of drive-in cinema there yeah. may have been a little bit of cannibalism but although i think mostly it was about um because if you look at something like night of the living dead they were eating but they were zombies eating people, and so somehow that's not quite as bad. But yeah, I think mm. you're right that it's not really until we get to Texas Chainsaw Massacre that it becomes a bit more explicit in the idea of people eating people. Yeah, um, and it seems to have more in common with that cycle of films. Uh, and it's got a really combined British and American cultural influence running through it. So um, Gary Sherman, the director, is an American. <clears throat> and um, the way that Deathline... 
uh, also kind of it also draws from British history and culture um, from the Gothic tradition. Uh, it's directed by an American, and um, it kind of the film is uh, very much aligning with what's starting to happen in American cinema. Uh, with those kind of gruesome cannibal horror themes and the theme of a family of cannibals uh, eating people. That's something that we see in Texas Chainsaw Massacre a couple of years later. So it's really like this combined sense of something happening in British and American horror. These things sort of meet each other in Deathline, I think. Mm. Tasty. (laughs) Tasty. Uh, (laughs) And I I should mention it was released in America as raw meat, so not Deathline. It was called raw meat. Yeah, just um, just in case people weren't sure what kind of film this was. Yeah. I mean, I think that's Uh, a terrible title, personally. It's not as, I don't know, it's not as distinctive. Um, It doesn't really describe the film as well as, I don't know, Deathline is a bit more... um, it's the tube line of death. But then an American audience might not know what, what a line is, like a, an underground line. So no. perhaps that's why it was raw meat. Yeah. But it just, again, it, it makes it sound like one of those drive-in Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of films. Essentially, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, the poster is very exploitation-y as well, mm-hmm. if that's a word. That's got like topless women on it and yeah. all kinds of stuff that doesn't happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I suppose you know they were just they were selling it in America as an exploitation film. They weren't seeing it as oh, they're they're not seeing it as we do now. I suppose absolutely, they were marketing it totally with emphasis on guts and gore in the U.S. And I I remember reading that the press book for the film Raw Meat in the U.S. and of course, press books say a lot of stuff um, that didn't necessarily happen. But um, the press book that was kind of meant to sell the film to cinema owners suggested that posters for the film should be placed in the windows of local butcher shops. <laughs> I bet it didn't happen, but the, nice. the suggestion that <laughs> this is literally about raw meat. Um, yeah, so really, really big, a big selling point for the film in the States as opposed to in the UK, I mm. think. Yeah, we keep our cannibalism slightly more classy. <laughs> uh, so did you want to talk a little bit about the critical reception for the film? Well, yeah, so we've mentioned um, the positive review, but even um, so even in that monthly film bulletin one, um, Robin Wood acknowledges that critical reaction to the film has been, he calls it, it's been insensitive in the extreme. So... You know, clearly the the general um, consensus was not very positive Um, and possibly because the film was just so shocking. If you were not used, you know, this was something that was quite new and critics just saw it as appalling in varying ways. Um, There's quite an interesting review from uh, so Roger Ebert famously uh, very often does not get cult cinema despite having written mm-hmm. despite having written some of it himself in his earlier days um but yeah he's really not very um kind to the film at all like he complains about the acting of um some of the characters um he is trying to find the best bit here um he asks the questions that I was asking to be fair about how this has been going on without the police catching on until now. Um, if the Robin Wood doesn't ask that, does no. he? Robin Wood, I mean, you know, he leaves it alone. He leaves it alone. Yeah, and Roger Ebert <laughs> does say, 
why if the survivors can move freely from their old tunnel to the new one didn't they simply escape <laughs> and, it's, it's it's a question i i can't answer yeah um. so he he was coming at it um yeah he just wasn't particularly appreciating um what was going on here yeah so generally speaking the critics were not all of that uh won over by it but obviously now it's since become far more recognized um and perhaps perhaps the critical reception may have been different i don't know but may have been different if the film had starred marlon brando as was the initial uh intention yeah so that's an interesting um line of thought and i would really like to know if that is true because i've heard this mentioned that marlon brando was originally to be cast as the man, as the monster in the film. Um, and uh, I've seen this kind of in a, a couple of places. Um, uh, however, in a, in the interview that Gary Sherman did with Diabolic magazine, does he talk about this? The uh, one I saw it in is an interview he gave to uh, comingsoon.net, which is obviously a very reliable source. But he, in this, it's claimed it's claimed to, claiming to be an interview with Gary Sherman, and he points out that originally, the monster part of the man was offered to Marlon Brando, who at the time of the pre-production for Deathline, was um, making a film in Paris with Bertolucci, mm. of course. Um, okay. So he was in an interesting part of his career. He'd already done The Godfather, but he, and he'd also he'd either just shot it or he was about to do The Nightcomers with Michael Winner, which I I mm -hmm. think is actually pretty good. Um, generally, people hate Michael Winner's films, and I can understand why, but I think The Nightcomers isn't too bad. But anyway, Marlon Brando apparently agreed to be in it, um, but because his son became ill, he had to pull out. So I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe if Marlon Brando had played the monster in this film that may have just attracted even more hate because Marlon Brando um, was quite divisive for critics yeah so perhaps it would have it would have certainly raised the profile of the film um, but whether it would have helped it critically I don't know I don't know and I think the the way that um, the man is played uh, you know in in Deathline by um Oh, uh, his Hugh, name is Hugh Armstrong. Yeah, Hugh Armstrong is is so brilliant. Uh, it's just such a wonderfully expressive performance. Uh, so yeah, I think it kind of works the way it is. It's an interesting fact, though. Marlon mm. Brando was almost in Deathline with Christopher Lee and Donald Pleasance. That's uh, wow, what a film! Yeah, yeah, it could have been. best guitarist in the world so, uh, well we maybe he can here. record the theme tune well that's a thought <laughs> it's got a very peculiar soundtrack that film i mean i i've never quite understood why it has that the intro soundtrack right is it's completely uh, totally off key isn't it in terms of the um <laughs> yeah i'd never really thought about it is it because I, I guess i'm just really 
crap at picking up on uh, sound and soundtracks. I'm more of a visual person. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a deliberate sense that you're being misled at the beginning of the film. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm. You know, I think it's 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 giving you a sense that you're expecting something completely different from what you get. Um, that's my feeling anyway. It's so it's so out of key with the rest of the film. I mean, we've already started, but let me introduce our guest for this podcast episode. Um, we've got with us Paul Debreschik, who is a lecturer at the Bartlett School of Architecture in London, and he is an architectural writer. Uh, he's recently written a book on Manchester. Um, he has interest in architecture and cities, which includes ruins and underground spaces and ecology. Um, you have visited some very interesting abandoned places, judging by your social media feeds. Um, and um, a few years ago, you wrote the reason that we've asked you to come on is a few years ago, you wrote a paper called London's Under London, which um, was talking about Deathline and the kind of semi remake of Deathline called Creep. But perhaps you could tell us initially what interests you about the underground spaces of London? Um, yeah, so I, I, I sort of started my life as a researcher, doing a PhD anyway, um, looking at the development of London's sewerage system in the 19th century. And um, I guess what, what interested me about it was this kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a quote in the film, in fact, it, it happens twice where it's said of the underground London that it's like a, a rabbit warren. And I think that that sort of encapsulates my own fascination, this kind of hidden world that is incredibly difficult to to work out and to kind of picture and to have an image of. And it, I found it really stimulating, like for my imagination more than anything else. And that sort of ran throughout, although the PhD was a really kind of uh, what you call it, a meticulous, rigorous piece of work. The thing that stayed with me, I think, was this strong imaginative element that you that you seem to always get with underground spaces, even really banal ones like the, the tube. Um, they, they seem to, something about their invisibility, the fact we don't know them, that is incredibly kind of uh, rich for our imaginations. Like the world of Deathline, is that something that could exist down there? I, oh, don't, really... necessarily, I don't mean the cannibals necessarily. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of the spaces, for sure. I mean, even more complicated than is shown in, in Deathline. So there are 40 or so abandoned tube stations un, under London. Mm. But really, really, it's a result of the fact that this um, network developed private that each line was like a private separate private company uh, so there was no really joined up network it's, it's kind of like we, we're led to believe that it's a totally joined up network by things like the tube map which uh, I mean it is a joined up network right but actually the way it developed initially was quite piecemeal and so it led to lots of parts of it becoming redundant over the years as as it was increasingly kind of I guess rationalized as a network and it's unique in that respect. So I don't think there's another example of an underground system of trains in any other city in the world that developed in that way wow. and has so many 
abandoned spaces within it. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so there, I mean, there could feasibly be a society of people uh, living in the London, London underground that we don't know about. Probably, probably not though. Probably but not. That's, but that's the, although it's unbelievable, the premise of the film, right? It's a fantastic premise. It has a certain kind of sense of reflect, it reflects or goes with the reality of there's loads of spaces down there that you could live in potentially. Mm. <laughs> if you yeah, know, know where they are and you have some kind yeah. of there's some um, sense of an undiscovered world a society within a society um and it's uh you know neil gaiman's neverwhere is something that touched upon that hidden world of london i think underground um but i'm, I'm trying to think of other because it seems like something that you know british culture in terms of film and television and you know uh literature would have wanted to mine sorry for the terrible pun that was unintentional <laughs> but it sounds like something that could potentially be the subject of a lot of really cool stories um horror stories thrillers uh yeah so maybe paul you you you've got more of a sense of that than i mean than it, I do. It, it is it's a little bit of a niche area i would say but particularly in fantasy genre so China Mieville has written two books set under under London so King Rat is one that's most similar to to Neverwhere which is Neil Gaiman's earlier mm. book uh, but also uh, Un, Un London which is a kind of young adults book that he wrote as well which again is this notion of a kind of alternative society underneath the city but it got I think in terms of London, it's not, I mean, if you look at a city like Paris, Paris has a much stronger history of fiction, fictional engagements with its underground. Really, really, it's like Les Miserables is, the, is like the key. London doesn't have a text like that, right? right. So Les Miserables has this massive mm. engagement with the under, underground of Paris. Uh, and we don't really see that in like, uh, Dickens, who's kind of working at the same time as Victor Hugo in relation to London's underground. So it's a kind of more of a later development, I think, that we see. And I mean, later, I mean, kind of post-war, that mm -hmm. we see a, a more sustained interest in London's underground. And that I think it starts it with film, really. So it starts with... Um, and Quatermass in the Pit, I think, is a really great... I mean, it's, it feels very cheesy, I guess, now in terms of its effects, but, but the actual story is really quite extraordinary in terms of this proposition of an entirely different history lurking beneath the city that is influencing the, the, the whole population of, of London, if you like. Yeah, that is yeah. a really good example, actually. Um, such a great example. Yeah, and I just I just rewatched the original TV version um, quite recently, and it's really striking. And it must have been very frightening for for audiences at the time yeah. because it's presenting quite radical ideas, uh, which of course Nigel Neal was really good at this sort of combining um, old and new and science fiction and magic and superstition and horror and rationality and all of those things. Um, but also, it, it, uh, when it was released, it was released when, so at the, I think it was the Victoria line was being dug when that TV series came out. Oh. And I think it, that was the first line to be dug for quite a number of years. So I think it was, it was playing on sort of real 
events happening in the city at, at that time. Um, and you do, I think when, uh, when there are new kind of projects, you do get this interest and this kind of fiction coming out as well, I think. Mm. So I think Neil Gaiman's came out when the Jubilee, Jubilee line was being oh, wow. in the 1990s. Okay. Which again mm. was, you know, these are quite unusual things to happen. And, and I'm wondering if like Crossrail at the moment might generate its own fiction. Crossrail's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, really, Crossrail's a massive tunnel. So would they be would they be utilising any? You mentioned all those abandoned stations and tunnels from before. Do they they get incorporated into something like Crossrail, or is are they just still down there, empty and unused? I mean, it just seems like an enormous waste of space down there. There's quite you know? a, yeah. Most of them are unused. There are interesting kind of proposals to uh, turn some of them into like uh, underground skate parks. <laughs> or or uh, like really exclusive clubs or kind of you know night venues basically but the, but the really interesting one is is Aldwych which is on the it used to be called Strand Station which is the one it's been closed since the 1990s and that's the one that always gets used in films yeah so it's used in Deathline and it's used much more extensively in Creep as well uh, but there's also a station at Charing Cross that's deliberately set aside to be used as a filming location. So there is this sort of interesting link between the underground spaces, the abandoned spaces and filmmaking itself, almost as if, I mean, at Charing Cross anyway, that they've deliberately left a bit of the station <coughs> so it can be used as a filming, a film set, because it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's still very difficult to film underground, even with you know, modern technology uh, because of the safety issues. Mm. So with, with regards to Deathline, one thing that you did in your paper was you tried to map the space in the film. And there are some diagrams in your uh, in your paper. What, what was it about the film that made you want to attempt to kind of rationalise what was going on on screen in a map? Um, I think I've always been interested in like the the notion of how you understand underground spaces because i think when when you're when you go you know, the most obvious kind of examples when you're on a tube ride you're, you're understanding the spaces entirely through this very abstract map almost like a circuit diagram that you're looking at you're not really understanding them in in a way which is about the spaces themselves it's incredibly different from how we walk the streets for example yeah so what interested me was like how can you how can you think about these spaces in a different way in a different way that is about trying to understand them trying to map them but in a way is generating a really different kind of map from that tube map which looks like looks like a circuit i mean you know i love it as, a, as, a, as an image this tube map but it's like it gives yeah. us a very very really very sort of narrow understanding of the underground oh uh, it's very misleading if you've ever i mean the, the amount is, of times yeah. i've been in london and i thought oh i can just walk to that one because it's really close if you're looking at the tube map and it, it's like a half hour walk and you wish that you had just bothered to get on the train but it makes it look like they're really close together it does it's so annoying it is <laughs> annoying um but it's 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 like um it's a very pervasive kind of 
thing in 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 the way in which we think about underground space is that we, we tend to think of it in these very reductive ways because we've been taught to do that mm. because the only you know that's how we that's how we inhabit it if you like so in 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 deathline i think what you have is this really interesting different form of inhabiting the space that is entirely kind of um you know i think i think the way in which it's filmed in the in uh, how different the filming of this space but this is this is quite unusual i think in in deathline in in the very it draws attention to the slowness of the way in which these spaces are are, are, are experienced mm. uh which i think is very very deliberate in terms of camera movement in terms of those really long panning shots which are quite I, quite unusual in horror films to see that right because it takes it it takes the tension away doesn't it you have a very long panning shot with nothing going on yeah well i mean it kind of works in deathline it almost works to it increases the tension and it gives it kind of tells a story that eight and a half it's eight and a half minutes it's a very long panning tracking shot that looks like one take i don't think it is but it yeah it looks yeah. pretty seamless it tells the story of this this man and his family and his life and the cannibals and um, it, it, it humanizes them and it it's grotesque and it's all the more grotesque because it's so humanizing and the way it lingers just I mean obviously Gary Sherman is just trying to be Orson Welles you know it's his first film he's, he's like I'm gonna just do this <laughs> <laughs> and, but actually it looks really it looks really good it works in a really sort of interesting I've, I've just not seen that before in in, in a horror mm. film to be honest <laughs> no I mean I, I'm not you know I'm not as 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 much of a horror fan I guess to, to know whether, whether it is a unique kind of device that's being used but it, it fit, but something about it as well something about the way the way the underground is experienced in that film is through jump cuts so it jump cuts always and, and really quite deliberate sense of increasing your horror <laughs> you know there's a scene where it jump cuts from eggs frying to the cannibals yeah <laughs> and, and but I feel that's done very deliberately to to make you jolt to jolt you into this totally alien world um, yeah and i mean that uh that long shot sort of gives a sense of claustrophobia of space it tells us of a of a very tight space of a very sort of um, a one room where where people live out their entire lives but then those jump cuts and you know the way the film works to create the sense of the underground as this big rambling you know um space of exploration of caverns that we you know we we don't know about a whole new kind of world uh it's really interesting to have that that contrast between that tiny space and the underground as this uh city within a city almost yeah i mean you know think i i i thought i was thinking about this film in relation to creep and how different creep is in the terms of it it create it, it creep creates a very strong spatial sense of a kind of labyrinth. You know, mm. you move through it as as a viewer very very directly. Whereas in Deathline, you sort of um, you have this almost like enclosed, almost like tomb tomb like space. I think I, that's what I kind of describe it as. The, you kind of you're in and then you're out of it and then you're in it and then you're out of it and you never really know how it's connected to to Russell Square tube station 
the man just sort of appears out of it and and at the end and alex goes into that space but you, you you never quite know what the link is but what's interesting is when you when you look at maps of where um, so the station in Deathline is based on British Museum station, which is a real abandoned station. It's still there. It's still abandoned uh, in the, abandoned in the 1930s. And if you look at a, an old tube map of London, pre a pre kind of um, the, the famous one, you can see that the British Museum station is in exactly the right place in, in relation to where it is in the film. And I found that that really interesting that there's you know even though we don't know how it's connected in terms of like where it might where it would be on the map it's in the right place in the yeah that is really interesting yeah uh and 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 that must have been something that was that was researched Uh um, because otherwise it would wouldn't work in in that way because yeah um, it's never shown in the film but you could walk, you could like walk as the man does from that station oh, to wow. Russell Square. That's it's so close. You know, it's just a few hundred yards. Wow. Um, so it, 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 it's right in terms of its like um, its geography, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, we uh, we had a discussion, Adrian and I, about Adrian and I about um, how the man could just, if he can make it onto the platform to kidnap people, he could make it out of the station. Um, so, so there's a whole kind of um, we picked at it and it unravelled basically. Mm. <laughs> yeah, this is you don't. You, this is not a plot that you can really delve too much into because it just falls apart. Yes, but it would. Uh, indeed, yes, but 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 it kind of like um, it's also about history, isn't it? So so this world that the man lives in isn't it's not just happening now. It's really interesting how there's a whole timeline within that space mm. that you're presented with. You know, three generations. I worked out that he's the third generation of cannibals. Yeah. There was a first generation who some of them were killed by when when the tunnel collapsed. They had children, and the man and his wife are the next generation, so the children's children. Mm. So if you know, I think it really is important that they've never come out of this space. Yeah, even though obviously they could. Uh, well, especially being tunnelers. Yeah, but this <laughs> this this idea of like a. Of a of a real history persisting in the underground, I think is really powerful, mm-hmm. even though it's it's yes, it's ludicrous. I no, I I agree. And Paul, you've you've successfully saved and defended the film yes. from from <laughs> Well done. <laughs> I was trying um, to, and I I couldn't quite. But yeah, the, the the also the fact that cannibals are apart from society is important. I think that they don't see themselves. Obviously, they're eating people, so they don't see they don't eat each other. They eat prey which they think of other people as not them but as their their food source really Um, so they're apex predators almost they wouldn't live in society because they are apart from society right absolutely yes but also they are um they are the past so this this so what i find really interesting is that there are there there are lots of references in the film to the the victorians Mm -hmm. so these these passing things so he so alex's bookshop there's a poster for Dickens's centenary, which is 1970, the, his centenary of his death. Right. So there's this notion that you're being asked to think about the Victorians 
in a really different way from mm-hmm. standard idea of you know this this notion of this this past period and that's really that's very interesting i think that's very subversive mm-hmm. this notion that actually the past is like this alien world uh, that we cannot understand and has virtually no relationship to to us now i i found really interesting yeah i I mean, I kind of love that link with the Victorians because, I mean, it's you you could construe that as being of, of the tradition of Gothic uh, horror cinema, but actually there's not really a lot about it that's very Gothic hammer. It's more like that underground above juxtaposition reminds me of Victorian fiction where we are seeing the symbolism of the lower classes versus the upper classes. So like in um, H.G. Wells' uh, The Time Machine, we have the Morlocks and the Eloi. So we have this mm. uh, this compare, this contrast between above and below. And, you know, Victorian in- culture is very much of dichotomies, you know, this this these contrasts. So I saw that in Deathline, like that aspect of Victorian culture, which I thought was really interesting. Sure. And and it, it it's really interesting that actually it's an American director who sees that. Yeah. He, he kind of picks up on that. And I think it would be a very different film if it was made by a British director. Um it it it, it wouldn't kind of have this uh raw rawness. Again, excuse the pun because I know it's called <laughs> it was called raw meat in, yeah. in the US. Um, <laughs> but, but this notion of the severing of social levels is really key to people like Wells is under so, so Wells is projecting in the time machine a, a, a future so he's almost like projecting it forward um not to the 1970s but as far forward maybe as far forward a bit further forward than that mm. but in a sense he's he his p- picturing of, of the projection into the future is of this total severing of the above ground and the below ground, the working classes and the middle classes, in a similar way to what we see in Deathline. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of interesting notion of um, the past and the future in that film that are going on simultaneously. And certainly watching it now is very odd because you do, you, you you sort of, that's still there, even though it's clearly very dated in in many respects the film you still have this weird sense of a future of a past which is not you know it's not buried it's not dead it's still still there yeah yeah and at the and end it's... of the the end of the film sorry the end of the film where he, I, I i mean i thought that i kind of that last mind the doors thing was a bit <laughs> it's a bit kind of cheesy right yes actually, <laughs> it, it's saying this is still here yeah mm-hmm. this is not put to bed right mm-hmm. yeah yeah essentially i mean it is a very multi-layered film it's a, an intellectual film you can tease out the nuance and you can really kind of um uh analyze it in depth it's not i mean there are aspects of it that are cheesy sure but it's also trying to say something about british history culture the past uh, the space, uh, society, class, it's doing all, it's trying to do so much stuff. Um, and I kind of respect that, especially for, you know, someone who uh, is a young director who's never directed a feature film before. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, and like you were saying, the fact that he's American and he comes in, you often see this where the most interesting films are the ones made by outsiders, people who come in and see a society from a different perspective. 
to if it was like you said if it'd been a british director it would have been a very different film and there are lots of good examples of that i think like again like roman polanski making repulsion is yeah there's a very different view of london there mm. um than if it had been made by a by a british director i think paul um obviously this film is not based on a true story but are you aware were there ever any actual cave-ins where people would have got trapped and died during the construction of tunnels was that something that happened oh yeah yeah oh, wow. i mean obviously they weren't left there as far as i know <laughs> uh but certainly in in the the construction of the drainage system there were there were a few fatalities mm. of people um so there was a gas explosion where two of the workmen were killed uh, and, and I'm sure there were similar accidents in the construction of the tube as well. Uh, I mean, in a sense, what's interesting is that the, 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 the story of the construction of this line is fictional. So it's, an, it's a fictional tube line, mm. but actually it does reflect the time when the deep level tubes were first being constructed, like right at the end of the Victorian period. Um, so again, it has this sort of link with real events um, and and a real tube line as well. So um, it's, there's this there's this there's this very clever kind of um, overlaying of an imaginative space over a real one, uh, which I which I see as is as part of. The way in which underground spaces are, are represented more widely in films mm. where there's more license taken with um, geography of the city uh, but it is quite precise as well um, it has to be as convincing as uh, as a as a film is made above ground if you like yeah i mean we see this in um in regards to new york as well there are many films that like Ghostbusters 2 or something like that, where you've got this underground world in in New York, or there's even one of the Spider-Man films where he's got a secret lair. Uh, Spider, Spider-Man's got a secret science lab in an abandoned tube station. Like the, this, this idea of the, these, what, what happens underground, all this stuff that we don't know is, is has still got currency, I think, not just, not just with London, but with other places too. It does, yeah, and actually, quite a a lot of underground spaces now are used to store um, servers for uh, the internet hmm. because they're seen as very secure spaces and very easily kind of managed as spaces. So you can get a totally ambient temperature in in a in an underground space more more so than you can above ground because uh, there's obviously no climate um, interference, oh, if you like. That's interesting. <laughs> Uh, so they're becoming really mundane in terms of what they use for, um, but still this element of secrecy, right? They have yeah. to be secret in order to to be safe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there are no maps then of where all these abandoned places are. Have they ever, have they ever all been properly mapped, or is it? Uh, yeah. So, so there's like a, uh, I mean. People who do it now, people who are interested in underground spaces now, generally urban explorers. And urban explorers, uh, this is, you know, it's been going on for, for, for centuries, people seeking out hidden spaces in the city. But urban exploration is, is a more sort of self-conscious mm -hmm. attempt 
to actually try and uh, so some a group of urban explorers in London tr visited all of the underground space abandoned tube stations and photographed mm -hmm. them and presumably mapped them as well. So urban explorers are often people, even though what they do is 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 often illegal and generally secretive. There's also kind of a public side to them where they're interested in building archives of these spaces as well and making them accessible. Oh, how interesting. Uh, and presumably a bit dangerous. Uh, yes, it is very <laughs> dangerous because the lines are live, right? Mm. And you have to time it. So I, I have to say I've never done this because it's a step too far for me in terms of putting myself at risk and also <laughs> breaking the law. So uh it because it's a live network it it is considered to be one of the most uh, extreme types of urban exploration in terms of the amount of danger it entails mm. and also your risk of arrest and prosecution yeah or being captured by a cannibal Indeed. yeah well that that as well yeah <laughs> Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, that was so interesting. I've learned so much about the underground. It was very interesting to go back to this. Good Lord. Oh, my God. All these generations have survived. This one's alive. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I'd like to thank our guest, Paul Debraschik, uh, for coming on and sharing his knowledge and understanding of the underground and his thoughts on Deathline. Um, so you can find Paul on the internet, of course. Uh, he has a website called ragpickinghistory.co.uk, and um, you can also follow him on Instagram just by putting in his name, Paul Debraschik. And if you want to know how to spell that, just look at our show notes um, where I'll also put the link on there. And if you've never seen Deathline, you can get it on Blu-ray here in the UK from Network, which we should mention does have a essay in the booklet written by Laura. Yes. <laughs> you can email us if you wanted to let us know what you think of the show on secondfeaturespod at gmail.com. And they can also contact us on Twitter, can't they, Laura? Uh, yeah, um, if you want to tweet either of us, me or Adrian, uh, my Twitter handle, let me see if I can remember this, is Laura Jane Main, at Laura Jane Main. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. That's easy enough. And <laughs> What is yours, Adrian? I'm at Retro Ramblings. Um, Ooh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, well, it's the kind of... That's good branding. I'm sort of stuck with it now, but... Uh, <laughs> um it's really it, it does what it says on the tin though yeah. i mean that's that's the twitter feed is is well not rambling exactly mm. that's kind of mean but it, it's retro <laughs> and it's some great information about yeah. you know old All films kinds of old crap but yes <laughs> anyway <laughs> um yeah so feel free to uh get in touch with us and let us know what you think of deathline or um what films you think we should be talking about in the future that would also be interesting all right thanks everyone for listening <laughs> yeah um so yeah thanks for listening to our first episode and we will be back soon that's it i think <laughs> <laughs> that's an elegant sign off yeah yeah really professional <laughs> <laughs> okay uh... that'll do won't it <laughs>